This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, this is Dr. Joy. In a world that sometimes feels uncertain, where communities can be disconnected, there are beacons of hope in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network. They believe that the people living all around you are your best bet at creating meaningful social bonds and preparing you for the next big weather event. Whether it's lending a helping hand to a neighbor in need or standing together in times of natural disaster, Neighbor to Neighbor empowers you to grow your community. Visit caneighbors.com to learn how you can help build a more connected community. Neighbor to Neighbor. It takes a neighborhood. Welcome to Strike Talk. There's a famous joke told in a lot of different forms about a guy who goes hiking in the Amazon for four weeks and then calls home to check in. He reaches his sister and asks how everything is, and his sister says, terrible, the cat died. The guy is incensed. He says, what are you doing dropping a bomb on me like that? That's not how you give someone bad news. You ease into it. The first time I call, you say, we have a problem. The cat's on the roof, and he won't come down. The next time I call, you say, he's still up there. I'm really worried. The third time I call, you say, it's so sad. He never came down. He just died up there. The sister says, you're right. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. The brother says, it's okay. I'm sorry I got so upset. How's mom? And the sister says, she's on the roof. That is actually a story about what it is now like to be a middle-class actor. When I was 10, the coach of my little league team was a guy named Keith Wegman. Keith had been an Olympic ski jumper, an awesome guy, but his actual job was acting. In TV commercials for Green Giant Vegetables, Keith was the Green Giant. He made enough off of ads and guest star roles to own a house in the valley near a good public school for his kids. He wasn't a movie star, just a middle-class actor who spent Wednesday afternoons and Saturday mornings coaching kids like me. But he always carried a briefcase, like a pro. I admired that. Today, Keith's career would not get him anywhere close to that house in the valley, and he'd be driving for Uber just to pay for the fucking briefcase. When this podcast began, Todd Garner and I decided to frame the dispute between writers and the companies that control our industry as the front line in a much larger struggle about the corporatization of America, the dignity of work, the worth of the individual, and the power of labor. What the companies just did to SAG, and make no mistake, the AMPTP pushed SAG onto the picket lines with proposals that guaranteed a strike, has underlined that point indelibly. We are now in a war about whether or not our unions or any union should exist. And everyone in the business, the writers, the actors, the Teamsters, IOTSE, the media, the companies themselves, everyone in the country, with the possible exception of the DGA, seems to know it. What's on the line is collective bargaining itself. Screen Actors first unionized in 1933. That union, SAG, now represents 170,000 members in 13 different designations. Principal actors, background actors, voiceover actors, pilots, stunts, puppeteers, etc. All of them are accustomed to struggle. Acting can be scary. And the people who decide an actor's fate, witness Harvey Weinstein, can be scary too. So SAG has always had the battle. In 1960, SAG joined a WGA strike in its third month and won residuals on movies sold to television. 
1978, a SAG strike resulted in a 32.5% increase in minimum salaries and a share of profits on movies made for pay TV. A strike in 2000 increased SAG's cable residuals by 140%. SAG strikes only when it has to. Here's why it has to now. To qualify for SAG's health plan, a SAG member must earn $26,470 in a year. That number is not close to enough to live in Los Angeles, but it will get you into the plan. Do you know what percentage of SAG members got there last year? 12.7%, the lowest percentage in SAG history, which means 87.3% of those actors did not make enough to get health care. You might be thinking, well, there are just too many actors. It's not my fault if they're all unemployed, but consider this. Among that 87.3% is an actress we'll call Jessie, not her real name, but very much a real person. Last year, Jessie booked guest roles on 13 different TV shows, speaking parts, on streamers, 13 of them. Yet she did not earn enough to get to that magic $26,000 number. Think of that. 13 auditions in which she beat the odds. That is a career year for an actor. But the pay on those streamers was so low, non-negotiable, that 13 jobs still left her short of a starvation level total. See why she's on strike? Minimums on jobs like that need to come up. Residuals on streaming shows in success need to be shared with the actors like Jesse who made them possible. And no actor should have to live with the threat of being replaced by AI. The proposal made by the companies to SAG would have allowed them to pay an actor for a single day, scan their image, and then replicate it in perpetuity for free. It would similarly allow the companies to use AI to furnish voice work on commercials, loop groups, animated series and films. It would replace people, get rid of, make extinct, do that, and you will destroy SAG. The result will be the Hunger Games. Unchecked centralized power in the hands of the few and workers forced to kill one another if they want to survive. AI told us on this very podcast, episode seven, that it can replace writers, actors, production designers, truck drivers, teachers, Sean Hannity, and yes, directors. And we said on episode two that you can always tell what companies care most about. It's the thing they will not give up. And so the strikes, the fight, the war inflicted on all of us by companies who wildly underestimated the resolve of two guilds whose members were and are less afraid of a strike than they were of facing decades of deprivation. This weekend, I met with 11 former writers from The Onion, all of them now trying to make a living in TV and film. They are talented, funny, hardworking, a bit nerdy. I asked them how the strike was impacting their lives. It isn't. They are so used to being on animated series that take a year or more to be renewed, or going eight months to find the next job, or surviving on corporate copywriting work. The strike is no big deal to them. The companies didn't account for that, I think. They should have. Their immense and blind corporate greed has put the whole business into District 12. We will fight our way out because we must. And because if we fail, if we cave and sell out all those truck drivers and production designers and everyone else who needs us to win, do you know where our business will be? It'll be on the roof. May the odds be ever in our favor. Joining me today to discuss that are four actual working actors, three of the members of SAG's negotiating committee. Please meet Sarah Ramos, Sean Sharma, Charlie Bowden, and Andrew Leeds. Welcome, gang. We'll start at the beginning. Before these negotiations started, what were SAG's members telling you? What shaped your thinking as you put together your list of proposals? And how dire were their needs? Sean, I guess we'll start with you. We had an incredibly robust W&W process, which is called uh, the Wages and Working Conditions Meetings. It's the way in our union that members attend open meetings, come and share their experiences and make proposals. Um, and if the room uh, votes to move them forward, 
they end up being reviewed by the negotiating committee in what we call plenary, which is where we get all of the proposals from across the country. We had close to 300 this time. And we, in the past, the negotiating committees have taken less than two days to choose their priorities. We spent seven days going through every single issue that members brought forward and discussed them at length. And every single idea that had merit ended up in the package because we were going to fight for everything that uh, our members really needed and cared about and that every single category affected by our contract would be served by this negotiation. And so uh, the kinds of feedback we were getting were everything you could imagine from the from the big issues about just the scale minimums not being enough for people to be able to to survive, like the example you shared of that performer who did 13 shows and still didn't qualify for health insurance. But it also addressed the fact that our residuals have not kept up because when our shows are exhibited online, we are not paid the same way that we would have if they had been exhibited on traditional television or cable. And so we have been working at a discount to subsidize the executive bonuses that we're seeing popularized in the press. And that's just not working for us anymore. And this is our once in a three year opportunity to address it. And then there were even issues that affect uh, people in small but substantive ways where, you know, if you do a lot of days of background work and you're having to constantly pay to dry clean your clothes, at the end of a year, you may end up having spent thousands of your dollars just trying to provide production with what they want you to bring from home. And so we wanted to make sure every concern that had merit moved forward. And those are the kinds of issues that our members brought forward. So, Sarah, um Forever, in, in Writers Guild circles, the assumption was always that it was impossible for SAG to make huge gains when they went in to negotiate because SAG always needed so much help in, in the health and pension plans that that was all they could ever get. Um, what made this negotiation this year so different for you as, as you walked in there as a, as a part of the negotiating committee? Well, I got involved with the union for the first time um, during the pandemic, when I started paying attention to the 2020 negotiations. Shortly after the 2020 negotiations, our health and pension plan was in serious trouble and had to kick many members, a lot of them seniors, off of the plan during the pandemic, which was, you know, put they were on the roof. Like it was outrageous. They were beyond the roof. You know, it was just like a jarring experience. Um, as a member, I was, I've been acting since I was 10 years old. That's when I joined the union and I've been earning pension credits as long as that. So the idea that my contributions over the past 20 years would, could be ripped out from under me was a real wake up call to me during the, the pandemic. So I started getting involved. I joined committees at the union. Didn't know how much committee work I would be doing um, over the past three years. And I think that was just a stark reality. You know, the caps that limit the amount that the employers contribute to our pension and health funds per episode of a TV show haven't been raised in 40 years. And I think one thing that was different was people like Charlie and Sean uh, being there to educate people on all of the items that haven't been raised in decades. It's not just uh, pension and health caps, which are outrageous. It's also our per diem hasn't been raised since 
2001. The late payments for meal penalties haven't been raised in how many years? I think there was just a an awakening to how desperate we were in need of help. So Charlie, um, full disclosure, I know you because I cast you um, in The Last Tycoon and um, loved working with you as an actor. And then all of a sudden I discover as we go through all of this labor strife that you are a SAG historian and that you you know the history of the contract going all the way back to 1933 and where the holes are and where where the fights have been. How did that shape your thinking as you went into uh, these negotiations? Billy, basically, uh, in a nutshell, I'm a, I'm a 20, over 20 year member of SAG and after SAG after. I, I, I think sometime around year 18, I realized I had never opened up the 800 page document that is our codified basic agreement. And I, I felt that was so irresponsible of me personally. I just thought, I can't believe I don't know what's in here. And I started reading and I opened up to just random section. I'm going to start right here. Travel provisions. And I'm reading it and I'm like, okay, this is, oh, I didn't get that. I know I didn't get that on that job. Huh. What the hell else is in here? And I just started and I found it to be fascinating, all the different facets of 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 compensation and what's allowable, what's not allowable. And then I'm like, I need somebody to read this with me. This is too much. And then I came to find out that there's also a 2017 MOA and a 2020 MOA because those attached to the 2014 contract. And then there's a television agreement. So now I'm looking at over 1600 pages of contract and I'm just, uh, I'm beside myself by how much material there is for us to learn, to actually be knowledgeable performers of what's allowable and not allowable on set. And then it dawned on me, there's no way everybody on this set knows what's allowed and not allowed. And I'm starting to wonder if anybody is actually following rules. And while that's swirling around in my head, I'm wondering how we got here. How did we how did we get this contract? So I go to eBay, no plug for eBay, sorry, but I go to eBay and I find a 1938 supplemental and it's eight pages long. So our contract is relatively eight pages long in 1938. And then it was just a fascinating tour of, of acquiring contracts from different auction websites and from the Margaret Herrick library. And I started to build a database lining the contract up clause by clause, uh, uh, contract year after contract year. And I started to see how we shaped what we got. And, and I'm sorry for anyone that knows me that feels like I'm a madman, but it was truly fascinating to see the negligence to certain provisions and, and how things have eroded. We've made gains. Obviously, we've gone from eight pages to 1,600 total for film and television, but you can truly see how we are very, very behind. And when the conversation comes about of you know, the middle-class actor is not making as much anymore, the, the actors make less and less, you can see it in the contracts. It, it comes alive over time. You just see those rates or, or uh, become stagnant or you see certain provisions go away. Andrew, you are the only guest today who wasn't a member of the negotiating committee. I know that is not for lack of interest because we've had lots of conversations about it. Um, but I want to know what your experience has been. Um, take me through the last five years in terms of what you see around you in the acting community 
and why this year, this negotiation so completely um, catalyzed everybody to do what no one thought SAG was going to do. Well, you know, it's interesting. I, I was thinking about just right before this, that kind of the reason that this has come to a head is because nobody thought that SAG really valued themselves, I think. I think we have sort of shown in previous negotiations that we don't. I, I personally have shown that in my own negotiations. And I think that's what sort of led us here is, is that at, at some point we all sort of realized, oh, no, wait, we, we do value ourselves more than what we're getting. And, and we should. And so now it's sort of time to say enough's enough. I think this all could have been avoided had they given a little every year, you know, instead of pushing us to the brink of we have nothing anymore. I've been in the union for uh, 30, uh, 33 years, something like that. And I remember as a kid being treated well. I remember going on location and being put in a totally nice hotel. And I thought it was just a given. I thought that was part of the contract. It turns out it's not. It turns out that a lot of things that we became accustomed to either were not actually part of the contract, but people were respectful and tried to do the best they could by you, or things have been taken out of the contract uh, and eroded to the point where now you're, it's it's just not the same as it was. And so uh, for me, I noticed about five years ago, as I started to do more work on streaming and and that, and pay TV as well, I have personally seen uh, my wages go down. I have seen surprises almost every time I get a job now. It's the excitement of getting the job and then the surprise. You get a surprise afterwards, which is you're not going to be making as much as you made doing a network show. Um, and and then you say to your agent, um, wait, that, that can't be. And the agent says, I think it is. I think they're allowed to do that. You should call SAG. And so as that started happening to me more and more, I started calling SAG more and more and get, and luckily getting in touch with some people who really do know their stuff. And I started to find that, yeah, that's what, that is what we agreed to. That is what we negotiated for. And instead of in the past where, you know, where the studios might've been kinder and more respectful, now the studios are just saying, we've got no more money. We have to give you the minimum. We have to give you the floor. And if you can't accept the floor, then we will move on and find somebody who will accept the floor, which is why it's so important that we all come together and say, the floor has gotten too low. It's just, it's impossible to make your health insurance. It's impossible to make a living all over the place. There are abuses happening in terms of taking advantage in the sense that we are asked to hold long periods of time without payment where we can't accept other work. We are, you know, I've had line producers come to me and say, Hey, I need you to come in and I need to force your call, but can I waive the payment? Things like that. Um, asking, asking me to go to Vancouver as a recurring guest star and simply pay me a relocation fee instead of paying me per diem and, uh, and putting me in a hotel. Things that aren't even allowed by the contract. For me, the bigger concern is even if we get them to agree to certain things, how do we enforce it? Because we haven't been able to enforce a lot of things. It's like in what came back in the, uh, in the proposal list that SAG put out. Um, the AMPTP said, we're not going to raise late fees, even though we haven't done that in however many 60 years or whatever it is, because it won't even matter. They're still going to pay you late. Truly what our membership is experiencing is 
the slow boiling of the frog or death by a thousand cuts. You know, on the, on one hand, you have, oh, I guess I'm not getting as much uh, money. It, you know, scale doesn't go as far. The erosion of the the buying power of a dollar means I'm this. I can't make this last as long. Oh, I'm not with a franchised agent, and so now I'm getting things commissioned that ordinarily wouldn't be commissioned. So I'm losing some of that money. Oh, they want me to work and pretend that I'm a local in this other city, so I'm having having to pay my own costs of travel, lodging, and per diem. I may even take a loss on the job, but at least I get the credit. At least I might earn some covered earnings trying to make uh, you know my health insurance. Oh, you know, I'm not getting the same kind of meal penalty that we used to. So now I'm not able to eat on set. And sometimes they'll go the whole day and never break because they're just the, the meal penalties are so cheap. It's they just build it into their budgets or, you know, oh, now I'm doing what casting used to do, having to build a studio in my house and do all the technical labor that they used to do to edit and upload our auditions. And you know, like every place you look, we're being nickeled and dimed to death to the point that it is a net loss. Almost every job that is release to the community is now a let a net loss for the community, especially when you call in, let's say, 100, 200, 500 people to audition for something. If you add up the value of everybody's time for how much compensation only one person is going to receive, it's a net loss for the community. So we're just tired of every single place we look, we are being nickeled and dimed to death. And so something really needs to change. And even with all that sacrifice, you're not able to make your health insurance. And even if you book a big job, we're learning from so many people, whether it's Orange is the New Black or whatever, that even those people that we think are part of a huge show aren't earning enough to even quit their survival job, that it's our dream that when you book a big job, you'll be able to move up and, and be able to have a middle class, at least, uh, you know, lifestyle. Sarah? We have a cap on the amount that we can receive as late payment penalties. I believe it's $200. It's twenty days to ten dollars, so capped at two hundred. Then there's a five day waiting period. In that five day, there's communication between production and SAG-AFTRA, where they say, "Just so you know, you've hit that first ceiling. They have five days to respond. After that, there's a two dollar fifty cent penalty um, a day, with no max." Understand the last time that was changed was forty five years ago. Late fees for residuals hasn't changed in thirty nine years. 39 years ago, the number one film, the top films were Ghostbusters and Gremlins, Purple Rain. So, uh, and talk about background, 39 years. Their late payment uh, penalty hasn't changed in 39 years. It's $3 a day, and then it's capped at $75. That's for performers working under X1, which is the zone, uh, those zones on the West Coast for background. New York, it's $3 a day, and there is no cap. So we have a problem with parity between the two schedules. But there's a ceiling at $75 for the background performers. The late payment situation is a huge issue. They're not paying on time. And the remedy to that is not enough to make them pay on time. And we weren't even trying to eliminate the caps and create a kind of structure like the WGA has, which I think we would all prefer because it would you know, force them to pay on time. We were just trying to say, instead of paying $10 a day when you're late, pay $30 a day uh, to a maximum of $600 instead of $200. That was part of our proposal to fix the fact that they're paying us late. So, you know, yes, SAG doesn't strike unless it needs to. But the craziest part about all of this is 
while we're fighting for changes that need to happen, we're not taking this as far as it could have. This isn't going to fix the late payment issue. Even our solution, which will update things that are way out of date, won't totally fix the problem and the company still wouldn't even respond to the reasonable proposals we brought. Do you find in general, Sean, I'll I'll kick this one to you, that there is a difference now in a good way between the way SAG's staff handles claims and in general just handles information uh, compared with how SAG staff may have handled things five years ago, 10 years ago? You know, we have a new national executive director in Duncan, and it's our national executive director who sets the tone for the entire organization. And we have a new uh, president in Fran Drescher who sets a new tone for all the member leadership in the organization. So there is a night and day difference between how the organization functioned before they were in those positions and how it functions today. And without going into a long you know, history of all of that, clearly what we've seen is both of their actions have allowed us to unite and be strong and have the biggest turnout for a strike authorization vote in our union's history, far beyond what any of us could have ever imagined, both in percentage and turnout numbers, and the best package, most comprehensive we've ever taken, and just absolute unity in the room with unanimous support for our proposal packages, our board approving it, our board unanimously voting to strike. So I give all the credit to all of the work many of us have been doing, including Duncan and Fran, to reform our union so that it's operating in a better way. Specifically about claims, the issue is that the pandemic took a toll on our organization. We had to let go of almost a third of our staff just for resource conservation to make sure that we could pay our bills while nobody was working. And so all of our departments are trying to rebuild. And so our claim staff are doing the best they can, but we're a nonprofit. We can't pay as competitively as other for-profit organizations. So we are at a disadvantage when we're trying to restaff with qualified people to help service our members. And so uh, I will I will say that our staff are doing the best they can, but clearly we have uh, a lot of rebuilding to do. And, and this, this uh, strike is coming at a moment when we're still in that rebuilding process. Sean, there's one provision in, in this uh, negotiation that I knew nothing about going in which has to do with uh, the crediting payment to residuals. Can you take uh, our listeners through that? Because I was kind of gobsmacked when I first learned of this. I I couldn't believe that it actually existed in a contract and that has lived there forever. Please explain what this is. It is absolutely insanity. The idea that they are hiding your future residuals in your initial compensation. So, they are basically saying, hey, uh, you know, we're going to pay you your ask of $50,000, say, but 10 or 15 grand of that is going to be you borrowing against your future residuals. We're just going to, cl- we're just going to, if you're asking for 50 grand, sure, but we're going to take that out of what you would have been paid in the future. So these performers who are thinking they're getting their quote, they don't know that they're actually getting an advance against their future residuals, which they will depend on when they're not on a show or not on a film to get them through the lean times. Um, That's been an incredibly frustrating issue because sometimes agents are commissioning that, which if it had been paid as residuals, not all residuals are commissionable. So we are fighting to reduce the amount of someone's initial compensation that can be an advance payment of residuals. So we've seen a lot of people post one cent checks, two cent checks, $3 checks, which are what their residuals have been reduced to. But in some cases, people are not getting residuals at all, sometimes for years, because 
all of those residuals they would have gotten, they were paid and that was disguised in their initial compensation and their salary. We were able to limit that percentage to 15% for Netflix only. In the uh, rest of our television and film contracts with our other employers, there is no limit. All there is, is there is a certain amount that they can't invade. If you could get rid of that, your payment would just by definition go up by 35, 40% on every job. Sarah, is that right? Yes, that's right. Um, also, This is another area where we're not even saying stop doing this completely. We are just, which I think a lot of everybody on this call probably would have liked to say, end this practice entirely. Our proposal is just limiting the amount that they can do it. And another aspect of it is saying, you have to pay us the our advance paid residuals, quote unquote, in a separate check, like you do with every other residual, so that our members know what amount of their payment is residuals and so that their representatives see that so that our members can advocate for themselves and say, excuse me, this isn't commissionable. This wasn't part of my initial compensation. These are my residuals that if I'd gotten them later, you wouldn't have commissioned. Um, and also, I just wanted to flag that we have given this uh, a great name. It's called Wage Invasion. Wage Invasion is a great name. Let me ask you a question, Andrew. What do you think is the awareness at talent agencies of this particular issue? It's such a good question. I had never thought of it until recently, the idea that they are commissioning on on these essentially what are residuals, right? So like you said, if you're making $50,000 and $10,000 of that is in advance on residuals, they're also taking $1,000 of that $10,000, which de-incentivizes them to uh, negotiate for more money, right? So if, if we knew that that $10,000 was not commissionable, the idea would be that they would hopefully negotiate for more money to raise their, uh, raise their wage. Um, there are a number of issues with this. One is that it's sort of hidden. It's not really discussed. And it's also um, pretty much non-negotiable in any, in any series deal that I have had. I have been told immediately by the agent that's just the standard and they're not going to budge on that. Didn't used to be that way, by the way. I believe this is a practice that has become very, very prevalent over the last 20 years. But before that was not as big of a thing. It snuck in there. And there's nothing that the agents can do about it. It's preposterous is really what it is. Let's just be honest. It's tricking you. It's trying to trick you. There's no other way around it. Like they're trying to say your quote is $50,000, but we're going to pay you $50,000, but 10,000 of it is really not, you know, it's really later pay. It's, um, it's not particularly honest, I would say. And not only that, a lot of times they don't tell you how much they're actually advancing you. So they, they'll say the maximum allowable by SAG. And then there are certain money breaks, right? Where if I make over a certain amount of money, I'm not going to get overtime, for example, right? Well, if they're advancing you on your residuals and they say the maximum allowable amount, they don't actually know how much they're advancing you. So on one job, I called the accounting department. And I said, I'm right around that money break. So am I going to get overtime or not? And they said, well, we don't know yet because you, we don't know how much we're actually going to be advancing on residuals. We don't know how much residuals this is going to generate. And I said to them, I said, well, what happens if I, if it doesn't generate that, you know, if it generates a lot of residuals and then I would be below the money break and therefore I'd be owed overtime. They said, well, when that happens, when you find out how much residuals you would get, 
you can call us and we'll retroactively pay you. And I said, so three years from now, when I find out how much residuals I'm roughly generating from this job, I'm going to call you. And that's what, that's what they told me. For advanced pay of residuals, if a performer is working on a half hour program, their salary at $8,000 is protected. Anything over that 8,000, they can advance pay. <clears throat> For instance, a performer can be paid, can, can have a contract of $40,000 and everything except for the 8,000 can be advanced residuals. That's $32,000 in advance for God knows how long it would take to make that up. For a one hour program, that threshold is 11,000. Anything past the 11,000, they can advance pay. For uh, other purposes like syndication, non, uh, non-prime time network, foreign, et cetera, it's 9,500. This is a classic example of stop hitting yourself because what has happened in the current model is production companies try to get their number one, their number two, their stars, and bring them on and lure them on with this huge wage. And it's exciting. It's, it's got to be exciting for the performers. What they don't realize is that's all advanced pay. You're not going to see residuals for the next 200 years on that. And then what happens is to fill the rest of the cast out, they say, yeah, we just, we don't have the money. Sorry, it's, it's scale or nothing. And so then what happens? Our residuals as, as you know, everybody else on the show are based off our initial compensation. So if we're taking scale or less because they advance paid the first couple people, then our residuals are almost nothing. And then the star is making nothing in residuals because it was all advance paid and it's not going to be due to them any money for the next 200 years. Andrew, you just referred to span. Can you expand upon that? There are a few things I think that that can refer to and please any, any of the three of you jump in and correct me. Um, but one of the things it could refer to would be a series regular that, that waits for months, if not possibly even up to a year, I would think in certain situations to find out if their show is renewed and they're stopped from working on other projects, right? So that's one situation that could occur. It could it could occur with a guest star. Um, you know, when we had when it was just network shows, they knew the schedule. They had to get them done in time. I think a lot of this also, a lot of the shift in this in this business is that a network show ha- had to air on a certain date. They had eight days to shoot a drama, and they had X number of days to edit it, and they had to get it up and out. Now. They can shoot it. They can then reshoot it two months later. People can decide they want to do this. They want to do that. By the way, all of that costs a lot of money. None of it's going to the worker. There are with network television. You had you had a certain. You knew what your schedule was. You knew if you got hired to be a guest star on Grey's Anatomy, you were going to be booked from uh, you know October first through October twelfth. The eight working days there. That was that. Now you get a call and you say, so they want you to be on this amazing show. Oh, it's amazing. It's got everybody in it and it, and they're paying them all a ton of money. And we're going to pay you the floor. Uh, and not only that, we don't know your dates yet. And, and listen, we don't want to bother you. So if you can't do it, if you can't guarantee us that you're free for the entire month of October, even though we're only going to be paying you for three or four days, but if you can't tell us that you're free for the entire month of October, then it's fine. We can go, we'll, we have to go to someone else though. You understand, of course. Um, and so what it's allowed them to do is hold people for long periods of time to delay booking them. I believe my understanding is that when you book somebody, you're supposed to tell them the exact dates that they're working. Uh, I could be wrong about that. Please feel to correct me. Feel free to correct me. Um, but they no longer really do that because they don't know. 
sometimes when they do, when they, when they don't know, I've had situations where they've, uh, where they've had me sign a contract and then changed the dates and given me a new contract and then given me another new contract and had me sign them to which my agents and managers said, don't worry about it. They'll do the right thing. Mm, they didn't do the right thing. And this was on a show with a budget of $15 million an episode. Um, so and when I was making the minimum that you could make. Um, so, uh, so span can also refer to, to holding people. I mean, also you could get a job and they could say to you, you got the job. We have no idea when it's going to shoot. So please hold on to all these dates for us. And there's just no, there's nothing you can do because you want to, you want to keep the job. It is so hard to get a job that you're willing to say yes to anything. And in the meantime, you're potentially turning down other work. Some people who have second jobs, you may, you know, maybe you have to call your restaurant and say, Hey, I can't wait tables for the next week because I'm supposed to be working on this thing. And then you take off time from that. And then you find out you're not actually shooting next week. So now you've got no income. So now we have to talk about the big bad, the monster in the closet, AI. We have been addressing this on this podcast uh, from the jump. It was of course scary for writers and, and the feeling always was that SAG had more to fear about AI uh, even than writers did. You guys drew a very, very firm, indelible line on this one. And the AMPTP did not come close to the language that you guys required. Sarah, can you take us through the negotiating committees thinking about that? Our proposals around AI were structured around consent informed consent, more importantly, um, and compensation. And in addition to what Duncan shared about their first proposal um, for regarding background actors, they also had language in there saying that if a performer is dead, then they can use their digital replica for free as long as they want. And it literally made it so it would be cheaper for them to kill all of us, to like scan us and murder us and then use our digital replicas. It was outrageous. But they didn't actually propose killing you, did they? That wasn't part of their package. No, they just proposed something that would incentivize them to kill us financially. (laughs) For me personally, my story is that I got into the union in a way that most people do. And that is that I, I got three background vouchers and, uh, and that's how I qualified. Now they proposed that they be able to scan a performer and we, we were asking for a daily wage for scanning. They wanted to use that scan in perpetuity and not be able to pay them. Then they countered and said, well, scanning only takes maybe 20 minutes. So we want to pay half a day wage, not even a full day wage. We want to pay him half a day to scan and use that scan for the rest of time. Now that would make it to where I would have never been able to qualify. I would have been scanned once and I'm not going to be able to join SAG-AFTRA. I'm not going to be eligible. Now, the second part of that is I had qualified as a background performer, but I actually had to join when, when they were looking for a younger version of Sam Anderson on Without a Trace. Again, that doesn't exist anymore because they will de-age Sam Anderson. So I, I as a performer, would never be able to join the union had we signed that contract that they pushed across the table. What they pushed us would end the union. You would have no, new, almost no new people joining 
It's how we qualify. We do have a, a, um, a requirement of a certain number of background performers on television shows and on films, yes. But currently, they hire above that because they need them. If they don't need them anymore, you don't have people that are going to be qualifying to join the union. So, Charlie, set the table for us. I, I've been in these negotiations three times, uh, but obviously our listeners have not. As you guys walked into the negotiations, I guess that's three weeks ago, four weeks ago, whenever you began, what was the feeling in the room? Did you believe a deal was reachable? Um, did you feel at any point like the AMPTP was actually listening, responding, and behaving like a corporate negotiating partner? And if so, when did that feeling start to change? I think everybody was extremely optimistic going in. Like Sean said, we had we had months of of W and Ws. Our plenary was very thorough. The, the the education level of this room was so high. I mean, Sarah started by talking about how she's just started to get involved in committee service and it's her first time on the negotiating committee, but her level of brilliance is is far surpassed so many people that that have been doing this for a very long time. And I mean that in regards to how the contract works, how productions work. Uh, the, everybody brings so much to the table in that room. So when we walked in, we were ready to have a very, very educated conversation. Unfortunately, we were talking to people about AI that have never seen Avatar. So it's it's hard to, to have conversations with people that were asking us questions about how tears are made in post-production. Sean? You know, part of what people don't see that you have seen, Billy, and that we have now seen, uh, those of us on the negotiating committee, is it's really telling what the first uh, counter they make to your proposals is. And it was really clear from that first counter that they had no intention of dealing with us in a respectful fashion. Their proposal on minimums, for example, was way below what they had just given the Directors Guild, which we all know would have been at least the floor for what we would be agreeing to, not anything less than what the DGA got. And their first proposal, uh, their first counter to our AI proposal was equally insulting. And what we saw is that we have had to fight tooth and nail to undo the reconfiguration, rewriting of what we had presented to them, where because of our brilliant team that has been working on AI issues for a decade, we're able to identify, hey, you could drive a Mack truck through the holes that they have created with the way they rewrote these proposals. So what kept going back and forth, back and forth for a month was us trying to catch where they're trying to get around our protections. And it made us feel really unsafe. And there were other things that happened during the negotiation process where one of the members of our negotiating committee, his career was actually threatened. And the only way that we know is because that person was connected enough that a producer told him that the labor relations people from that company had said, don't work with this guy. And it sent a chill throughout our entire negotiating committee. And so things like that happened. You know, the the uh, leaking of information to the press before our negotiating committee even found out about it, lying about it, trying to pull in a federal mediator when we'd already given them 12 days of an extension to try to be do our part where we could go to our members and say, defensively, we did everything we could with the time that we had that was reasonable to try to make a deal. 
it was really clear that they weren't interested in that. So it, not only did they mess with our AI proposal trying to put holes in it, the entire process became unsafe. And we didn't know whether we should even continue. And we also don't know how many of the rest of us are now threatened because we don't have the connections that that one member did to know what's being said about us. So I, I, what I really appreciated about your last episode is that I've lost faith in the AMPTP as the representative of our, our employers in negotiating with them. I would way rather deal with the companies directly than with the organization that treated us the way that they did. And I don't think that any of those network executives, had they been in the room, which they weren't for, for you know, by the way, like Bob Iger talking about how we're being unrealistic or unreasonable. He didn't spend a day in the negotiations with us to know what we were talking about. When the reporter said, you know, can you comment on why they're being unrealistic? Do you remember what he said? He said, I can't answer that. That was a truthful statement. Of course he can't answer it because he doesn't know what we're doing in that room. And so uh, I would way rather deal with the companies directly than this organization that clearly isn't representing them well and not serving us as the employees well. Sarah, did you have a sense in those negotiations that Carol Lombardini has control of that room? Carol was definitely the spokesperson for that room. Brand said to them at a certain point, if you don't have the power and authority to meet our demands, we're going to have to go above your heads and talk to your supervisors. Basically saying, you know, we want to talk to the manager because what Carol said for the AMPTP and what she has said in past negotiations and what seemed to work was, you know, our bosses have authorized us to spend a certain amount of money on this negotiation. And all the only purpose for this talk with you is for you to tell us where to put that money. We're not going to give you more than we've been allotted. You're just going to tell us uh, where it's going to go. And Fran, speaking for all of us, said it's not sufficient and they did not listen to us. So what we're looking at is a history of abuses um, that are both inside the contract and then sort of extrapolated from the contract that haven't been addressed over a course of decades. Um, and Charlie, I'm sure, could take us through that history and why those issues weren't addressed. But they're now going to have to be addressed. Um, and AI is just one of them. But I do want to remind people before we close, because we have to end this eventually, that actors do this because they love it. Actors do it because it's their calling. And I was wondering if each of you could give me a one name answer to the following question. Who in your career has been the greatest source of inspiration for you as an actor? You don't even have to tell me why. Who lit that fire or made that fire bigger for you? Sarah? It would have to be anyone who knows me knows it would be two people, Mary-Kate and Ashley Olsen. Charlie? Gene Wilder, Peter Lorre. John? Up until the slap, I would have said Will Smith. Andrew? I mean, the truth is it's, it's Julie Andrews and Ben Vereen. I, I don't know what to say. I want to leave everybody with this. When you're directing a movie and, and auditioning actors, you realize that the whole point of casting is so you can stop casting. Just like when you're single, the point of dating is so you can stop dating. And when you're going to high school, the point of going to high school is so you can stop going to high school. I know that doesn't sound very Zen. The journey is supposed to be the destination. And yes, I am the least Zen person I know. I'm doing this podcast so I can stop doing this podcast. But these strikes are hurting so many people that I feel the need to remind everybody that for all of us walking the picket lines, the point of striking is so we can stop striking. It's not just so we can get our steps in. 
The actors joining me today and the 170,000 members that they speak for love their craft. They love being storytellers, just as I do. They suffer for it willingly in very real ways. They just don't want to starve for it anymore. They don't want to be replaced by machines. They don't want this business, which we all love, to collapse under the weight of a collective corporate greed that is truly breathtaking. So to the men running Apple, Amazon, Netflix, Disney, Comcast, Warners, Paramount, and Sony, I would say this. The point of making movies is so you can make more movies. So you can spread more joy, tell more stories, create more legends. We are striking to make sure that that remains possible. And we'll stop the second you figure that out. I want to thank my guests and my producers, Shane Whitaker and Hannah Baker. Please join us next week when my guests will be Joan Crawford and Greta Garbo. This is Strike Talk. Hi, this is Will Friedle. In a world that sometimes feels uncertain, where communities can be disconnected, there are beacons of hope in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network. They believe that the people living all around you are your best bet at creating meaningful social bonds and preparing you for the next big weather event. Whether it's lending a helping hand to a neighbor in need or standing together in times of natural disaster, Neighbor to Neighbor empowers you to grow your community. Visit caneighbors.com to learn how you can help build a more connected community. Neighbor to Neighbor. It takes a neighborhood. Hi, this is Matt Rogers. And this is Bowen Yang. In a world that sometimes feels uncertain, where communities can be disconnected, there are beacons of hope in your neighborhood. Introducing Neighbor to Neighbor, a California volunteers network. They believe that the people living all around you are your best bet at creating meaningful social bonds and preparing you for the next big weather event. Whether it's lending a helping hand to a neighbor in need or standing together in times of natural disaster, Neighbor to Neighbor empowers you to grow your community. Visit caneighbors.com to learn how you can help build a more connected community.